Welcome to The Bible in Our Culture, an outreach radio ministry of Liberty Remnant Church, where we encourage you to view the culture through the lens of the Holy Bible. Well, welcome to The Bible in Our Culture, where we look at the culture through the lens of the Bible. We don't look at the culture and then decide how we want to view the Bible. The Bible sets the tone for our values, for our beliefs, for everything important. And over the last few weeks, I've had a lot of great guests on the show, and I haven't actually taught from the scriptures in a while, but headed into Christmas, there's this word that's been burning in my heart that's way different than anything else I've ever heard regarding a Christmas message. It has to do with comparing and contrasting Matthew and Luke's quote-unquote Christmas stories. So you probably know, if you're a student of the word, there's really not much about Jesus' birth or young life in Mark and John, their Gospels. But Matthew and Luke have their own accounts. And you know what? They're rather different. But they're alike in the important regards. And we're going to look into that. Where are they different? Where are they alike? And why does it matter? I think that's super important. Because I think a lot of the truths within the so-called Christmas story has been hidden in plain sight. We haven't really looked at it except for as a Christmas pageant. I think there's a lot of Christians that think, well, I know the Christmas story. You read it every December 25th or every December 24th. I was in a play. I directed a Christmas pageant. I know all about the Christmas story. It comes with the eggnog and the peppermint candies and all that. Well, I think a lot of those things, those Christmassy things like candy canes and holly, and how the nativity story has traditionally been presented has caused us to miss lessons, to miss truths that otherwise we might have noticed if we simply took a look at the story of Jesus' birth like we look at the Bible in general. Now, some of you are thinking, well, the Christmas story is special. Yes, it is. It's very special. But so is the rest of the Bible. Psalms is special. Galatians is special. Genesis is special. It's all special. So, Let's look at the Bible for what it is and maybe set aside Christmas trees and Christmas lights and all the Christmas decorations, because I think those things have caused some of these truths that we're going to look at today and next week. They've caused us, they've, these truths are worn camouflaged. It's like they're there, but nobody could see them because we, we have this traditional uh, state of the line. This is the way you're going to look at this story. The Bible simply tells what happened at Jesus' birth. Human tradition has made it Christmassy over the generations, and we've mixed it with sleigh rides, mistletoe, silver bells, snowmen, all that. And I love the Christmas season. I'm not trying to slam and say, don't, don't uh, celebrate Christmas. I'm not that person at all. I love Christmas. It's a time where we think of love and generosity that Christians should fill all year round. And it's a time where we really get to preach the love of Jesus and that God became a man as a little baby. Great time. But I think it's filtered how we've seen this story. So please discard your pre-existing spin on this story. And let's look at Matthew and Luke. I'm, I'm trusting that you're at least somewhat familiar with both those accounts. In Matthew's account of the Christmas story, it's really different than Luke's, but they never disagree. They testify with amazing agreement on all the important facts. Now, Luke focuses on Mary and Matthew on Joseph. We're going to look a little bit more at the Matthew account today. The shepherds and wise men 
did not come to worship young Jesus at the same time or even at the same place. That means your nativity set has been devalued. I'm sorry. Maybe your Christmas cards have this nativity scene with shepherds and wise men at the manger with the baby Jesus. Well, I'm saying that didn't happen. And I'm confident of it. I'm not trying to mess up your nativity scene, but I will tell you this. In my living room, we have a nativity set in the corner of our living room. And about halfway across the room on a shelf are the wise men because they were not there the night Jesus was born. What do I mean by that? Well, we know from Luke that shepherds came on the night Jesus was born. And he was likely born in a manger or in a barn or stable. But the Bible doesn't say that. We just kind of assume that because he was put in a feeding trough. And we figure, well, there's a feeding trough for animals. He was probably born in a barn. I think he probably was, but we don't know. Now, Matthew really isn't telling the same story. He talks about after Jesus was born. And then wise men came to Jerusalem, where they talked it over with Herod, and then they had to take the journey to Bethlehem. But it was a time after Jesus was born. The Bible says in Matthew, the wise men found the quote-unquote young child, not a baby. Luke uses the term babe or baby. They're two different Greek words, with a baby meaning more like a baby, and the word young child being more like a young child. And here's the thing that a lot of people miss. In Matthew, the young family was found in a house by the wise men, sometimes called magi, but we're calling them wise men. They were in a house. So when Mary and Joseph got into Bethlehem, there was no room in the inn for Jesus to be born. So he was, he was born, what, in a barn or under the stars or whatever. But eventually they found a house and they settled there. And that's when the wise men came. We don't know how much later that was. Enough time for Jesus to grow from a baby to like a toddler or something. But it was a different place. So I'm sorry to devalue your nativity set. Just do like me and move the, move the wise men across the room somewhere. So in Luke, big emphasis on the quote-unquote Christmas story are the shepherds who come and worship Jesus. Matthew never mentions that. Well, I understand from a lot of scholars that shepherds were the really low-wage uh, income earners in Bible days. That you didn't have to have a whole lot of education uh, to be a shepherd. You just had to watch the sheep and, and share them and that sort of thing. Well, Matthew, who never mentions the shepherds, mentions what Luke doesn't. Rich, well-educated wise men come to worship Jesus. And they came from a long ways and they were educated in science and astronomy and all sorts of stuff. It's really interesting. Luke who was a Gentile, he records Jewish shepherds at the as the first people to worship Jesus. I think that's pretty significant that Luke, being a Gentile, would record how Jewish shepherds were the first to come to worship Jesus. But Matthew, who was a Jew writing to Jews, he records the first Gentiles to come and worship Jesus. It's strange that Matthew's emphasizing the Gentiles and Luke is emphasizing the Jews. And Luke gives a favorable reaction to the shepherd's evangelism by other Jews. You probably know the, know the story. And they returned, praising God and glorifying him. And all who saw it were amazed at what they were told. So the other Jews that heard the shepherd's testimony were excited about it. Well, Matthew, it's way different. He has this story about these wise men, these magi, going and worshiping Jesus. But then there's a hostile reaction. The angel of the Lord warns that wise men in a dream don't go back to Herod. And so they, they escape. 
So I think it's interesting that Matthew tells how the first people to face peril from the Roman government for telling other, others about Jesus were Gentiles. Guess what? The Roman government was going to kill a lot of people, including Jesus himself, all the disciples. There's going to be generation after generation of martyrdom, of feeding people the lie, lighting them on, on fire as a human torches, all by the Roman government for people who came to worship Jesus. Guess who the first people were to face peril for worshiping Jesus and telling other people about Jesus? It was the Gentile wise men, and Matthew records that. So I think this is going to show that we are one human race. I think that's a big key, especially in the New Testament. We see it throughout the whole Bible. And here at Jesus' birth, kind of in the story of, of Mary and Joseph, we see Gentiles, the Gentile Luke, giving props to Jewish people. And we see the, the Jew, Matthew, giving props to Gentile people. It's really clear in Ephesians 2, 11 through 16, it says, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, he's talking to people from Ephesus, a long ways from Israel. Verse 12, it says that at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one, right? Who's he brought peace and made one with? Jew and Gentile. We're one. Verse 15, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. There are one people of God, and we all get to be God's people through grace, through the cross, through the Son of God himself, Jesus. So we see this one race of believers as an emphasis throughout the book of Acts and the epistles, but we see it here in the Gospels as well. We see it in the Old Testament, but more concealed. But now that the New Testament is being written, some of these first stories are about Jesus's young life and the story of Joseph and Mary, and they're pointing to this one race, which I think is phenomenal. Now, please understand the nation of Israel has been an ally for human rights and representative government. Not just in the Middle East, certainly there, but all throughout the world. They've been an ally to the United States. And lately, there's this strange anti-Semitic, anti-Israel forces acting insolently and I think stupidly. I mean, it makes no sense. It's evil. I've shared in the past about going down to City Hall and anti-Israel rioter, rioters took over City Hall hostility with, uh, with, with, uh, with a hostile, aggressive manner, just basically took over City Hall and all the city uh, council just left as they took it over. These people are socialists, they're anti-police, and of course they're anti-Israel. And I asked myself as I was down there, what spirit is influencing these poor souls? I mean, you look into their, their eyes and you see anger, you see confusion, you see a, a real emptiness wanting to belong. And so they got caught up in this uh, pro-Palestinian, which is really uh, pro-Hamas, anti-human rights, and, they're, and they believe everything that, that Hamas says for some reason, and they don't, they don't believe anything anybody else says. And so it's like they found this cause and they found these other people and they feel like they belong. And I'm like, Lord, help them. Reveal yourself to them. And in all my compassion for these folks, I still say there is no excuse to be racist today. I mean, there is none. The Bible makes it clear we're one race, and even the most secularist, the most anti-Christian people, 
uh, they condemn racism. Now, they, they condemn racism where there's not racism. They, they say, well, if you believe that um, man is a man and a woman is a woman, you're a racist. It's like, how does that come into play? Huh? How does that have to do anything to do with race? Well, if you're a Republican, you're a racist. Well, why is that? Well, because Trump is a Republican and he's a racist. Well, why is he a racist? Well, he just is. You know, they, they, it really doesn't make any sense. But clearly, we should all agree that racism is wrong. So why the revival of anti-Semitism? And I'm going to say there's racism with the anti-racist. They, they, they call themselves anti-racist, but they focus on this superficial fact of somebody that focus all on their race and they look at everything through the lens of racism. And so they are racist, even though they think they're anti-racist. I call it neo-racism. Well, race is merely a superficial fact that God intends to remain superficial. And we're seeing it in this story that contrasts of Matthew and Luke looking at the young life of Jesus and the story of Joseph and Mary. Matthew 2, verse 13, it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. Wow, pretty crazy. Verse 15, And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew was uh, recording, uh, quoting Hosea 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. So I got onto Google Maps. I thought I'd take a look at the different uh, treks of Barry Joseph in in the Bible. And the Luke account, they start in Nazareth, and they've got to go 95 miles to Bethlehem because of a tyrant. Caesar Augustus said, hey, we want to register everybody in their home city. And Joseph is a son of David. He's a son of all the kings of Judah. So he's going to go back to Bethlehem where we can register him and track him. It's, it would, to me, it'd be kind of like a vaccine passport or digital currency tracking everything we do. That's what tyrants do. And so here's Joseph having to take his wife, who's great with child, and travel 95 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. I mean, even today, that'd be three and a half hours. And then after they get to Bethlehem, they take a trek up into Jerusalem, and then they head back home to Nazareth. Well, ironically, Matthew has a different account, really. It's not conflicting. It's just surprisingly different. In Matthew, they start in Bethlehem, and then they have to flee to Egypt. We just read the story. And then after they're in Egypt, and they get another dream, Joseph does and says, hey, Herod's dead. Go back to Israel. So he goes back to Israel, and then he gets another dream, says, well, his son's on the throne. So don't go to Judea. So he ends up going back to Nazareth, where they were from, and settles there to raise Jesus. Now, this happened over a period of time. We don't know exactly how long. But I find it interesting because in verse 23 of Matthew 2, it says that he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth. This is kind of the end of Jesus's uh, babyhood, if you will. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So he's He's, he was born in Bethlehem to fulfill all sorts of prophecy, and then he went to Egypt to fulfill prophecy, and then he grew up or, or came out of Nazareth to fulfill prophecy. Pretty crazy life Joseph and Mary have lived, and next week I'm going to talk more about that, but up until now, they are the setting of a romantic chick flick. I mean, here they are, they love each other, they're engaged, and then Joseph realizes his fiance's pregnant, and he knows he's not the one. 
who got her pregnant. So what am I going to do? He's perplexed. I'm sure he's hurt. He's probably angry, but he loves her and he's a righteous man, the Bible says. So he's not going to belittle her or embarrass her. He's going to try and do it quietly and have mercy on her. Well, then he gets the dream from the angel Gabriel and says, hey, this is God's plan. It's a miracle. She is who you thought you were, basically. And so they get on with their engagement. Quite a setting for a chick flick, if you ask me. But now we head to a different part of the story, and it's a new drama. This dream about fleeing from uh, Bethlehem to Egypt makes it an exciting, real-life suspense action spy movie thriller type of show, if we were going to make it a movie. Now he's got supernatural intelligence, secret intelligence, that the king, the, the executive, is trying to kill his adopted son, Jesus. And it's his job to take his wife and kid and flee by night into Egypt. My goodness, what a bunch of drama. I think Hollywood's got nothing on the real story of the Bible. I think it's interesting to point out how the Lord provides guidance and the couple provided the obedience. Same with you and me. If we are disciples of the Lord, then, then our job is to obey and he will give us guidance. But again, we see Matthew, the Jew, emphasizing that the king of Jews relocated to Egypt for a season of his childhood. Egypt of all places? The light of the Gentiles, as the Bible calls Jesus, spent many of his formative years in a foreign culture. I think that's significant. To know what it's like to grow up in a foreign culture, and again, not any culture, but that foreign culture, Egypt. Egypt is their story. All throughout the Jewish people, they talk about being slaves in Egypt and coming out of that, the Passover to celebrate that, and the Feast of Tabernacles about wandering from Egypt into the Promised Land. And whenever they backslid, a prophet would rise up and say, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And that happened over and over again in the Old Testament. So now God the Father has Jesus relocate to Egypt. Well, that's pretty crazy, but it also fulfilled another messianic prophecy. One from Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, where Moses says, there's going to rise for you another prophet like me from among your midst. Well, Moses and Jesus are very similar in a lot of ways. I think Moses is a type of Christ. And one way he's a type of Christ is he had his childhood in Egypt, as did Jesus. And they both came out of that and led their uh, people out of bondage and into freedom. Just the, Moses and Jesus. There's so many types and shadows there. But you have to ask yourself, what is your earliest memory? Perhaps it has something to do with this Christmas season or something like that. Well, perhaps Jesus' earliest memories were living in Egypt as a racial minority in a time and place where oppressive racism was normal. Perhaps Jesus' earliest memories were living as a foreigner out of place in a Gentile culture. Well, he was called to be the light to the Gentiles. I think it was helpful for him to kind of get some perspective. And he probably felt like, well, why do mom and dad look different, dress different, act different than all the other people around town? And why are everybody treating us different? I think that was God the Father's wisdom and sovereignty to have Jesus spend part of his childhood in Egypt. And it fulfilled Messianic prophecy. So as we contrast Luke and Matthew, whose account is the most accurate? They're both genuinely accurate. I might say they're accurately accurate, but they don't give the whole story about every little detail. They give the perspective that the Holy Spirit wanted them to give. It's differing perspective with different emphasis. 
Contrasting reports in the Bible are not conflicting reports. Not by any means. Contrast supports the Bible's legitimacy, not vice versa. If ever there's a, a crime or some big thing happened and there's uh, investigative reporters or police detectives and they're interviewing people, they're going to get a different perspective on everybody they interview. If, however, they give two or three people who are giving the exact same testimony verbatim, well, now they feel like there's been collusion. They've talked it over and they've agreed to the same thing. They're not sharing their own different perspectives. They're not sharing their different emphasis according to who they are. They're memorized something. They've, they've colluded together and they're hiding something. It might even be the same on a family vacation. A year and a half ago, my family, the five of us, went on a vacation to the Midwest. My wife had some business to do there, so we kind of made a family vacation out of it. And we were gone for about two weeks. We came home, and if people asked us, hey, how was your trip? Well, all five of us would probably give a little bit different account with different emphasis and different things we'd focus on, different perspectives. If we all said the exact same thing, we went to the Sears Tower it was high. We saw a long ways. It was scary. If we all said the exact same thing, all five of us, you'd be suspicious. Hey, do these people really go to the Midwest at all? They're hiding something. They're all telling the same rehearsed, repeated uh, facts. They're telling the same story verbatim. So why aren't they just telling us their own perspective? Well, the Holy Spirit and his wisdom had four different accounts of the Gospels because they're emphasizing four different things. And when we look at Matthew and Luke, I think we can see their contrasting stories of the young baby Jesus's life is really, really, really important and different for a reason. So once again, Jewish Matthew, he records a little bit different. He doesn't emphasize a trip to Jerusalem that Luke emphasized, but he emphasizes relocating to Egypt to live with Gentiles. And it's weird that the Gentile Luke doesn't record this trip to Egypt, but he does record a special trip to, quote, fulfill the law of Moses. All the ceremonial law of, the, of Judaism and Jewish people, Luke made it a point that Jesus fulfilled those. Or actually, he was just a baby. He didn't. But it was important that Jesus, who would fulfill the law, his parents also had him fulfill the law of Moses as a child, as an infant. The differences in the story of Mary and Joseph seem to be recorded by the wrong dude. Why is the Jewish person Matthew giving all the props to Gentiles and explaining everything from a Gentile perspective? And why is the Gentile Luke giving all the props to the Jewish people and focusing on fulfilling Judaism and, and the ceremonial law? It's like they're recorded by the wrong dude. What if there was a story about Joseph and Mary, and in the story we learn that Joseph could bake cookies and he could sew while Mary was an artistic craftsman who could build quality furniture in her carpentry shop. Well, that wouldn't be impossible. A guy can learn to bake and sew, for sure, and a woman can be handy in the carpentry shop building furniture. But it just doesn't fit what you would expect. Call me a postmodern uh, misogynist, I don't know. But that's the stereotype. Well, it's kind of the same with the Jew Matthew recording all about the Gentiles and the Gentile... Jew recording all about the Jews. I think there's purpose in what God does. I believe there's one race. So Matthew, the Gentile, Matthew, the Jew, he focuses on the Gentile wise men, how they worshiped Jesus, how they evangelized, and they gave their wealth to Jesus. They were threatened for worshiping Jesus. And he records that Jesus lived outside of Israel with Gentiles, Egypt of all places. 
Luke, on the other hand, he's emphasizing one race. He's focusing on the Jewish shepherds who also worshiped Jesus, who also evangelized. And they were received well by other Jews. But Luke also records this special trip to Jerusalem and the temple, fulfilling the law of Moses in Luke 2.22. And then two verses later, it says that Jesus, well, excuse me, Joseph and Mary, in regards to Jesus, did everything required by the law. Both writers agree on all the important issues and never contradict each other. Both testify Jesus' mom was Mary and his father was Joseph. That's important. But strangely, they both testify that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and they both testify Jesus was raised in Nazareth. Remember, this is 95 miles difference. That's a long ways in Bible days when you're traveling mostly on foot. What are the odds that this Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth? What's astronomical? How could that be possible that anybody would be born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth? But would they have the charisma and leadership to be a Messiah? Well, Jesus had all that, and he was the Son of God. He did miracles. He, he fulfilled all sorts of prophecy that it has to be true. Anybody who's seeking the truth will find that Jesus fulfilled all these Old Testament prophecies. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. But both Matthew and Luke also testify this one important thing. Jesus was born of a virgin. How astronomical are the odds that he'd be born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth? Crazy ballistic. But the fact that he was born of a virgin isn't just very, very improbable. It's impossible. I'm no gynecologist, but you can't be born of a virgin. I mean, Jesus was a miracle. And if you don't believe that, well, I'm sorry, but you don't believe who Jesus really is. Jesus was born of a virgin. And you have to believe that in order to believe who he is. And both Matthew and Luke show the personal sacrifice of Joseph and Mary. We're going to talk more about that last week or next week. But kind of the moral of the story is don't get sucked into the new racist culture. I thought we were out of the woods a few years ago, but now there's been a revival of racism. We see anti-Semitism and all sorts of crazy racism. Look at people the way God does. Look at them as individuals. They have their own personality. They have their own history. They have their own character. Basically, Dr. Martin Luther King's dream, which I believe was God's message to us, don't judge somebody based on the color of their skin. Judge them by the content of their character. In other words, look at the individual. That's what I think is emphasized as we take a look at Matthew and Luke and contrast the differences in how they told the story. I think it's important. Well, thank you for being part of the Bible and our culture. Please come back next week when we talk about Joseph and, and Mary and, and the honorableness of, of Joseph leading his family as an adoptive father, something that we don't normally see in the Christmas story. If you have questions or comments, please email me at office at libertyremnantchurch.org. And if you want to support this ministry, you can go to libertyremnantchurch.org backslash give and support our radio program. See you next time. Thank you for listening to The Bible in Our Culture, an outreach radio ministry of Liberty Remnant Church. If you want to support this ministry financially, you could do so by going to our website, libertyremnantchurch.org backslash give, and select radio ministry. See you next week at the same time.